Ultimately, everything kind of boils down to one question. What's the fucking point? So let's talk about it. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and this podcast brings a little levity and a lot of curiosity to some of the biggest questions and ideas that we meager humans can ponder. Join me and our guests each week as we dig into topics around psychology, human behavior, consciousness, spirituality, philosophy, and more, all with a healthy dose of existential angst. And now, today's episode. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to episode number 24 of What's the Fucking Point? I am excited for you to hear the interview with this week's guest, April Lang. But before we get into more about April, a few things that I wanted to share with you. I mentioned on the intro for last week's episode that it had been kind of a crazy week professionally, personally, family stuff going on, and my grandfather did end up passing away. It was his time, so it's certainly one of those things that's uh, just to be expected at a certain point, but of course, comes with a mix of emotions. So I kind of went back and forth, like, do I say anything about that? Do I not? I posted about it on Facebook, but that's my personal page. And I do want to share about it because I think that we all relate to loss and we all can take something from getting the tiniest glimpse into a stranger's life. Um, One time, actually, I sang in the church choir for a memorial service of the husband of one of the choir members but I had never I knew her just barely a little bit at that point and I had never met her husband so this was my first time being at a funeral of or memorial service of someone that I really had never even met and it was actually incredibly powerful like I walked out of that service like feeling a great admiration and appreciation for this man and the lives that he touched and just feeling buoyed and we all need to feel that um, in this day and age so I'm going to share a little bit with you um, what I wrote about my granddad Boyce Vardaman my granddad Boyce had his faults like any of us but he inspired the hell out of me He was a Methodist minister and a highly engaged social activist. He built and flew his own small planes. He owned and ran a construction business, building countless houses and other buildings, including my childhood home. When I was 11 years old and cut my scalp open on the corner of a cedar chest at their house, he was the only adult there. Noticing my blood-soaked hair, I yelled to my nine-year-old cousin Taylor, Run! Run faster than you've ever run before! Get granddaddy! He rinsed the blood out of my hair and taped a cotton ball to my head with a piece of scotch tape. Boyce got up early to run almost every morning, and he ate like it was his job. He especially loved cooking breakfast for everyone, and any time it was pancakes, he was happy to add chocolate chips for his weirdo granddaughter who only finds pancakes worthwhile if they are basically cookies. The last few years of his life, he suffered from dementia. At his first senior home, he kicked the window out of his bedroom and went for a stroll to show them who was really in charge. I watched him decline each time I visited home to Texas or got updates from my mom and my stepdad, who was always thoughtfully sending photos of their time with him. It was heart-wrenching to see this strong, brilliant man become increasingly more lost and frail. But there was a gift even in that. 
His demeanor also softened and sweetened, giving us all a chance to experience a gentle side of him we'd never seen before. I'm proud to be his granddaughter and grateful for his part in raising my mom to be the woman she is. Good night, granddaddy. Ah, <sighs> So, I was a little weepy when I was writing that last night, but it was also very therapeutic, and I'm looking forward to going home to Texas in a couple weeks for his celebration of life. So, moving on to the next thing I wanted to mention... I feel like I talked about this somewhere recently. I know I shared about it in a yoga class and um, a talk I did on stress management, but I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast. I am reading Mantras in Motion by Erin Stutland. She's a fitness instructor in um, New York. And now I'm having deja vu. So if I already mentioned this, you guys, I'm sorry. It's really worth checking out. I'm getting further into the book. I'm loving the exercises and the both journaling and the physical exercises with mantras. So just wanted to share that in case uh, you have not heard about that yet. And actually, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll reach out to her to come on the podcast once she finishes her like main press jaunt and you know, takes a break and then I'll, I'll catch her in round two. Uh, but she was on my mentor Jenny Blake's podcast, The Pivot Podcast. So you can check her on there. And of course, a bunch of other ones that she's done in sort of the the press circuit. But Jenny Blake is obviously my fave. So check that interview out. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, okay, so it's come to that moment of no return because you're listening to this. I published this. So... I am coming out of the vegan closet, you guys. And I know that some of you listening who know me personally are like, what closet? You're loud and proud. And I am, but there is this split. So I know last year, last season, there was an episode with my friend Rebecca Trinidad who, where I came out of the broom closet as kind of a pagan, um, earth-centered spirituality person, which you know, nowadays is like not even a controversial thing, really. I mean, maybe for some people in some areas. But anyway, so now I'm coming out of another closet. And the reason why it's been kind of siloed for me uh, is working in eating disorders. And I originally got into this field to work with eating disorders because of my own recovery process and just wanting to share that with others. But it's been since I went vegan two years ago over two years ago now it's been frustrating it really feels like vegan is a bad word in the eating disorder field and people kind of throw it around with a lot of judgment and the funny thing is like I I'm not necessarily faulting people like I there's some activism work that I want to be doing around this and writing and reaching out and speaking because I get it, because I was doing the same thing before. And I like cringe, obviously, now thinking back on that. But, you know, I just assumed it was disorder too. And so I want to take you, I think the best way to summarize this is through sharing another brief reading. And it's a good like seven, eight minutes long. If you've already listened to my video that I posted, um, on which was not mentioned on the podcast, um, which I, I may have already been on break from the podcast, but it was an event I got to do in, in mid-November. 
and I wrote kind of a spoken word poem thing, Nashville's first cruelty-free arts um, showcase. So there were musicians and writers and artists, uh, visual artists of different kinds, and I don't write a ton anymore. I want to write more, but I really felt proud of this piece because I really felt like it it truly honored my journey. So if you've already heard this, you can fast forward, I think, about eight minutes. Um, If you haven't, I encourage you not to fast forward. And then I will kind of uh, give a little bit more context of where the interview comes in with April Lang and tell you all about her. So here is my poem called Sorry, Not Sorry. Eight. I noticed my Uncle Keith didn't eat the turkey at Granny's house at Thanksgiving. He says he hasn't eaten meat for a few years, and I learned it's called vegetarian. But everyone else eats it, so it seems kind of weird. Sorry, maybe it's rude to call it weird. I don't really know. Twelve. I'm sorry, you can you pick it up? Raw meat just grosses me out. You can see, like, the tendons and ugh. But no one else seems grossed out, so I guess I'm just too girly or delicate or something. Fourteen. My first vegetarian friend, Sarah. She orders her Happy Meals without the patty, and she can't eat bacon. That must really suck. Sixteen. I'm sorry, I can't eat that. I'm vegetarian. I say it smugly, 16 and a girl possessed. Sure, I like animals, but mostly, I'm terrified of calories. These tiny monsters that warped my live little body, that created these rounded hips and these sturdy legs. With everything else going on, I can't deal with this too. One insult from the football players and I'm done for. Puberty be damned. Not eating animals is a convenient way to not have to eat much at all. 18. Um, sorry, I only wanted the white meat. After all, it's only 28 calories an ounce, the perfect lean protein. And honestly, eating meat off the bone still kind of creeps me out. I'll save my calories for the good stuff. Bluebell, cookies, and cream. I did spin class today, so it's fine. 23. More vegetarian friends. The guilt is there, but I do my best to smother it. At times I join them, but I never last long. I don't have the willpower, I say. I just love hot dogs and the veggie ones are kind of gross. Also, bacon. 25. I'm sorry, I get where vegetarians are coming from, but I just do not understand why someone would not eat cheese. Queso is like my reason for living. It's not like taking the milk for cheese kills the cows or something. And sure, it's fatty, but how disordered do you have to be to decide not to eat cheese and ice cream because of that? Orthorexic much? It's so sad. 26. I drive past you every morning on the way to work. I see you roaming in the fields, sometimes having to wait in my car as you're being herded across the street from one pasture to another. I try not to look in your eyes. I laugh at myself as I sit in my office and reach for my phone, thinking it's vibrating, but it's often just you with your low, 
I go across the street to the farm-to-table restaurant and have a grass-fed burger for lunch. But at least it's grass-fed, right? 27. At times, the dissonance grows louder, and I try to stop. But I have every excuse in the book. It's so hard not to eat meat in the South. I don't want to restrict my food. What if it makes me crazy again? I need protein to have energy. But really, I just like it. And sorry, I want what I want. 28. At my yoga teacher training, we're talking about this concept called ahimsa. It's Sanskrit for nonviolence. The subject of eating meat came up and the teacher said something like, that's a choice everyone has to make for themselves. But I'm pretty sure he eats meat, so it's not like it's a requirement. 29. Okay, maybe I'll try just fish. Fish are practically not even real animals. They're like from another planet. They're nothing like me, and they probably don't even feel pain the way mammals do. I mean, I'm no marine biologist, but probably, right? And it's really easy. You can get fish almost anywhere. But it's been six months now, and I feel like I'm just white-knuckling it. I feel deprived, even self-pitying. And that pepperoni pizza just looks so good. Everyone else is eating it without a second thought. Fuck it. 30. I was doing one of those loving-kindness guided meditations today. It got to that part where you picture sending love and compassion to the whole universe. May all beings be at peace, happy, and free from suffering. Fuck. Off to McKay's for some vegetarian cookbooks. As I'm browsing, I see the book Eating Animals by novelist Jonathan Safran Foer and add it to my stack. I start reading it and I'm appalled. I'm in tears. There goes fish. I watch the documentaries I've always avoided, even rolled my eyes at. What the fuck? That's dairy? And eggs? That's what animal research looks like? Jesus Christ, I'm done. Done. A switch in me quietly, but most certainly flips. Heavy research ensues. My eyes are open. I see now. I understand. When I drive past you now, I make a point to look in your eyes. Because maybe I'm the only one in your life who will. And while I don't feel that same gnawing guilt, I feel so sad. I think to all the ones before you, I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. 32. It's been two years, and this is the best decision I've ever made. I'm never looking back. And you know what I'm not sorry for? I'm not sorry for having special dietary requirements. I'm not sorry for sharing upsetting articles and videos from PETA and Mercy for Animals because it fucking should be upsetting. I'm not sorry for being vegan in the field of eating disorder treatment where it's usually criticized and assumed to be disordered. Obviously, I get it, but please, don't just assume. I'm not sorry for being difficult to shop for or make plans around. I'm not sorry for the discomfort people feel when my choice brings them face-to-face with the dissonance of their own choices and values. I'm not sorry because there is work to be done and the animals need my voice. Loka, Samasta, Sukino, Bhavantu. 
May all beings be happy and free. So there you have it. Hopefully that gives you more of a glimpse into my story. And I think there are aspects of that that I know a lot of people have shared that they relate to. And I used to think it was really hard until I really got the education that I had kind of avoided and found a support system as I talk more about in the interview. So another kind of disclaimer that I want to say up front, like absolutely, even though I said that I think that vegan does not need to be a bad word in the eating disorder treatment, it is possible to be doing it for the wrong reasons. And as you heard, when I was a teenager, I went through that phase and it was not healthy for me. But one of the things even that's different now is back then there was not a lot of actually delicious cheese, ice cream, etc. that I could have been having. So not to say that it had to be restrictive, but I can understand how in early recovery people might say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't restrict um, because that can just fuel the disorder. But nowadays you can just go to Kroger and get, you know, a pint of cashew milk ice cream or whatever else and you can replicate all the same food experiences. You can challenge rigidity around food. So that's why I think that the field is kind of really mis- misled and a lot of misperception that's frustrating. Um, and if it's not healthy for someone and or it's not what they want, then fine. I'm not here to judge anybody. I want more love in the world, not less. So that's the other really important piece that I want all of you to hear because the reality is the vast majority of you that are going to hear this are not vegan. And maybe some of you are vegan curious, Um And maybe not. And maybe for whatever reason you feel like it's not a healthy decision for you. So more power to you. This is your call. And as I always say, I can't, I don't think I said this in the interview, but everyone can find their thing or things that they're like really passionate about and connected to. So like water in third world countries. Um, all of these, education, like there are so many issues, child abuse, so many things to advocate for. And I don't have the time, bandwidth, emotional energy to advocate for all of them, to be directly involved with all of them. So I'm grateful for the people who are. So would it be awesome for the planet and for animals if more people reduce their meat consumption? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that in order for it to be impactful that you have to go vegan. And also, you might be really spending your efforts in other causes, environmentally or otherwise, and that may be the best use of your mental energy and bandwidth. So I want to really honor that because the last thing I want is for someone to listen to this and feel judged um, and we're not here to preach like April and I both work with non-vegan clients probably the majority of our clients because again that statistically is where we're at Um, so I love you all and there are plenty of choices that I make with regards to I'm like trying to go more reduced waste but 
you know, there's still things that I buy that are in plastic and maybe I should be ashamed of that or whatever. But I'm like, we all do the best we can at the time. And this is such a great example of when we know better, we do better. And I learned better. And so I was able to make a change. But even if you have that information, you might say, that's not actually the best change for me. Here are the areas that I can commit to making an impact that feel right for me. So that is absolutely an honorable choice that is yours to make, and I respect it. A um, little bit about April Lang. So she is a therapist in New York, and we just became acquainted, New York City, we just became acquainted recently because I found out about a vegan therapist Google group where they are communicating and trying to get the word out more about um, the issues that ethical vegans might have and that need to be addressed and and brought to attention. So we're trying to get more out in the public and do some writing around things like that. And I just knew the minute that I saw April's website, I was blown away by everything that she's done. So like I said, she doesn't just do work with vegans. She does couples counseling, trauma work. She's a somatic experiencing trained professional. Um, She works with animal bereavement, which I think is incredible, um, and life transitions, and she works with ethical vegans. So she mentions in the episode she has been running a support group, and we'll be trying that again for vegans and animal advocates, and also support group for those suffering from loss of their animal family members. So if you're in the New York City area, there's in-person resources there for you. Otherwise, on her website, she's got tons of links to other podcast interviews and articles that she's done. It's just amazing. And she wrote a book called Animal Persuasion, a guide for ethical vegans and animal advocates in managing life's emotional challenges. Oh my goodness. I told her that the second I found all of this stuff, I was like, I want to bring you on right away. And a part of me is like, no, I should rate and read your book. But Uh, I'll read the book later. I just wanted to have her on to share this message, to come out of this closet, and to further integrate my work. So if by the time this airs, I'm hoping that I will have adjusted my website. I used to just keep all my social media and everything, my two different websites, two different social media for my Val the Vegan Therapist um, stuff. And I'm going to keep the website, I think. I'm closing the socials down, keeping everything at Val K. Martin on Instagram. And I'm going to even have a vegan page on my main website where I clearly talk about being an anti-diet vegan and what that means because there need to be more of us out there. So I know this has been a long intro, but I think it's been packed full of really important stuff that I hope you've gotten a lot out of. And let's get into the interview with April Lang. So April, how long have you been vegan? So I would say I've been vegan about 15 years. It's it's kind of strange. I know when I began my vegetarian journey, um, and I know what prompted me to, to go down the vegan path, but I, I can't remember the exact year. So I would say it's approximately 15 years. Yeah. Which is incredible. And, you know, I think I just sent along to our little vegan group one of the links that I put in an email was that Economist is saying that 2019 is going to be the year of the vegan. Um, So obviously it's having such a moment right now, which is incredible. But to be someone who got into this space and all of the sort of dietary and lifestyle decisions that that requires 15 Mm -hmm. years ago when there were like, 5% of the resources that there are now. 
what was that like being I mean we're still non we're still vegan in a non-vegan world but like 15 years ago what was that like yeah I know um well first off the um the cheese the cheeses were horrible and <laughs> I, when I had become vegan um, it, it was a process like I, I went up to Farm Sanctuary and, and up in Watkins Glen, New York, and I got the tour and I got, you know, I had been vegetarian for so many years, but I really didn't know very much about veganism. So um, I learned all about all the reasons not to eat eggs, not to eat dairy. And I went home and I was committed. And then I started thinking about it like, yeah, you know, I want to do this, but oh, I miss my cheese. And I miss my dairy because I loved ice cream and I loved cheese. Yep. So I, I became a failed vegan for maybe a month or two after that. And then I was eating cheese one day and I said, oh, oh, you know, it's like disgusting. Like I, I made the connection yeah. even strongly. And I said, what am I doing? I love animals. What am I doing? So I said, oh, I don't care about the, you know, the cheese or the dairy. I'll figure it out. And so I did, but again, the, the, the cheeses were like um, plastic, and the only ice cream that I could remember was um, tofuti. Yeah. It was very gas-producing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, bloated stomach always. So, yeah, that, that was my experience there. And I, I didn't think about, you know, going out. I mean, I could, you know, I could always get vegetables and rice and tofu and some basic things like that. And I didn't even know what was possible, really, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it wasn't like people that became vegan 30 years ago and there was really nothing. I mean, so there were options. Right. Um, but it, it wasn't anywhere near what it is now, which is amazing what, what's available to vegans. Yeah. So Farm Sanctuary was a big part of you transitioning from vegetarian to vegan. That was yeah. it. That yeah, just it. getting that education. I know for me, like – I don't know how, if my eyes were just closed to it or if I just didn't know. I really think it was, I'm sure it was part of both, but I really think that I was just exposed to the image of the, you know, the happy cow on the milk thing and the, the chickens pasture raised with their eggs. Like, I think that I just, you know, bought it all at face value because that's what we do. Um, especially given our cultural sort of denial, but yes. So then finding that out, it was just like, oh my god! I mean, I I went, f- I had many failed efforts at even being vegetarian <laughs> before actually fully educating myself. And at that point, it was just like, whoa. Okay, so apparently, not only do I feel that much more motivated to not eat animals. But now I I realize that if I'm going to be vegetarian for ethical reasons, I cannot eat dairy and eggs. And that was just like, you know, I I was in 30 years old until I learned that it was mind blowing. And to think of how many people still just are doing what I did for all those years is just buying into the, the marketing that were sold. Yeah, and and we and we are sold a real bill of goods, and which is so unfortunate because it's so untrue. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, and I think that you know the, the difference too between now when I became vegan and when I know a lot of people who became vegan way before me. The difference now is that there's so much information out there. So if you want to know, you know, you go onto anybody's Facebook feed and you're going to find even if if you're not even if most of your friends are not vegan somebody's friend is and you're going to see information about reasons to be vegan and there are plenty of books and there are videos and there weren't any that I 
knew of at the time or that anybody pointed me to. And I didn't, I didn't really know anybody that was vegan mm-hmm. back then. Um, even when I became vegetarian, I didn't know anybody that was vegetarian. So to learn, you know, to learn about it, to make the connection, I mean, you had to be uh, very, um, you know, you had, you had to take initiative yes. and say, hey, this matters to me and I have to find all the information I can. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. it's easy to do that now, but unfortunately there are people that even when they do know, they just turn their, turn their eyes away. Yeah. Right. And so even getting, even going vegetarian, were there people in your life who you knew who were vegetarian already and, and that was kind of in, inspiring to you or were you really, did you kind of embark on that on your own? Uh, you know, no, there really, yeah, first question, no, there really wasn't anybody in my life that was vegetarian. My family wasn't. Um, I do remember when I was about 13, there was a a girl I was friends with, she used to come to visit in the summertime where I lived with her family because I lived near the beach. And I remember her saying to me something about, oh, you know, well, if you love animals, you should be vegetarian. I'm vegetarian. And I was like, well, what's vegetarian? And I, I really didn't know anything about that. And, and nothing changed. I didn't explore it. I, But somehow I, I it's interesting that I still remember it because mm-hmm. I always did love animals. But when I finally went on my journey, it wasn't until I went off at 18 to college. And it was more this, you know, oh, um, I think I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start giving up eating animals. And I did it slowly each semester, you know, another couple of animals and, and you know, different species that I would remove from my plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, the, you know, there wasn't anybody. And, and I know so many people have had these stories about who influenced them and who inspired them. And the only thing that I would say that I became more into, you know, interested in animal rights and all of that was at reading Animal Liberation, mm-hmm. Peter Singer's book, which was a, a funny story in itself because I was going, I was going to the gym and I was passing the food emporium in my old neighborhood and the, I was, I was passing their, their garbage dump and there were a couple of books on the floor and one of them was uh, Animal Liberation. Oh, wow. And I, I was like, Oh, oh, I've heard of this book. Yeah, I have to read this book. So I just picked it up, never made its way into the garbage. Yeah. I got a real education. I knew nothing. Wow. Giving up eating animals, nothing to do with, oh, I know about slaughterhouses. I know what animals, you know, what happens to them when they're killed. Nothing. Wow. So that was very interesting that that happened. Yeah, like very, very serendipitous. I know. I know. Mm-hmm. And, and you've been vegan, vegetarian, so then for how long? Just a couple of years, a little over two years now, which I know doesn't sound like much in the bigger scheme of things. But again, given that I had like so many, well, I would say a handful of failed efforts to go vegetarian or even pescatarian, I, I recently um, got to participate in a the first Nashville, um, what did we call it? It was it was basically a collective of artists coming together to share cruelty-free arts. So there were some kind of like paintings and things available and then musicians and um, and people sharing poetry. So I created a poem for that that kind of shares my whole little journey in like eight minutes. Um, but yeah, so I had several failed ventures where I just felt like I was kind of white-knuckling it. And so I'd always eventually like crumble. Um, and again, like the biggest things for me 
in the end that made it like to once once the switch flipped for me it was it was done like pretty much 100 percent. like there's still thing little things that i um am kind of along the way being like oh well you know uh, honey i didn't leave honey right away and so there's still those little things but pretty much close to 100 percent all at once was the education and the like support of knowing and connecting with other vegans um so uh, with those two things just made it night and day so much easier um so having having had this amount of time with like zero temptation to turn back for me just it feels incredible oh it but that is so amazing that 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 you did this i'm curious though what was your biggest challenge you said you had a couple of failed attempts also what were your failed attempts yeah well i mean <laughs> it was honestly just like this selfish thing and because again at that point i didn't know anything about dairy so that was like never in my mind would that have been a question that i would give up dairy um <laughs> but even just with the meat it was it was like, ooh, this doesn't feel right. Oh, but, you know, I'd kind of fall back, like I mentioned to you before we press record, that I, so yeah. I'm so i an eating disorder um, therapist is one of the yes. things that I do, and that comes from my own history of recovery. So when I was a teenager, I was like, I'm a vegetarian. But it was really a convenient excuse to restrict. I liked animals, but I was like, you know, so I was definitely in it for the wrong reason. So even though I was many years into recovery, um, and very blessed that like, you know, I didn't have to go through this, like go to treatment four times kind of thing. Like I got on the path, um, but I would use that as sort of an excuse, like, oh, I can't restrict myself because I'll feel restricted and I'll get back into whatever, which, you know, I think what's like you were saying 15 years ago. Yeah, the, the cheese and ice cream options were not very good. But part of why I want to be such a, a vocal person of saying vegan should not be a bad word anymore in the eating disorder community is like, all right, so if you're trying to get someone to challenge their rigidity around food or they're orthorexic and they're only eating like the quote healthiest foods then uh, or clean eating, then give them cashew milk ice cream and Miyoko's cheese, like all of these things that you do not have to be restrictive anymore. Um, and you can be vegan too. So that was sort of one of the challenges was wondering if I would make myself crazy again. Uh And then another was just, just the, I want what I want. And, and I hate to say that, but it really was true. And, and again, that, that sort of went away once I watched, you know, actual like slaughterhouse footage and, and really saw firsthand the things that I could have only sort of imagined, but definitely was not imagining them the way they really are. Well, that's true. The videos tell you the truth. There is there is no way to you know there's no way to um, sugarcoat it. To, to, to sugarcoat yeah. that. But you know it, it's it's interesting in terms of you know going back to like the failed. I, like I was also a failed vegetarian, mm-hmm. and you talking about you know kind of selfishness. I had been um, so I had become vegetarian, and I've been that for many years. And one day I was I was working on a a play. And um, they were bringing in food. And I said, they said, what do you want? I said, okay, egg salad. Because I was vegetarian, not vegan. And they brought me back a tuna sandwich. Mm. And I was very hungry. And I'm like, oh, God, what do I do? What do I do? Is one of those moments. And I said, well, I'm really hungry. And I always love tuna. And I just ate it. Because I wasn't, I had never really thought about, you know, what happens to fish. And even nowadays, um, we know so much more. I mean, Jonathan Balcombe, you, you know him. He's mm-hmm. amazing. Um, 
I think he's a he's been a big um, well. I love him, and I think he's influenced a lot of people with his with his books. And we now know so much more about fish, mm-hmm. and they feel pain, they feel pleasure, that they're intelligent. And at the time, I just was thinking, well, you know, fish, you know, fish is a fish, and yeah. there isn't a fish. And and it wasn't until I went on a fishing trip, believe it's not, with my family some years later. And they were taking the fish that they had caught and throwing it into the, in the boat to some like bin. I don't know. I'm sure there's a name for it. And I looked at it and I saw these fish struggling. And I said, well, what's, you know, what's going to happen to the fish? I mean, I was like so stupid about it, naive about it. And they said, well, you know, they'll suffocate. They won't eat them, cook them. And I said, oh, my God. It was a light bulb went off. And that was the day I gave a fish forever, never looked back. So, you know, that was my video, you know, seeing this live video. So I understand now, and actually as I'm speaking about it, I never framed it that way, but that really was my, um, that was like a video because you're seeing, you're seeing an animal suffer and dying and you're making the connection. Right, right, absolutely. And I, I felt similarly about fish for a long time, and that's, you know, tried to do pescatarian. And I was like, ah, fish don't really count. They're like aliens. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, the research that's come out in the past decade, especially, and yeah. and learning about bycatch and just like how many other, you know, marine animals are caught just to get a pound of shrimp to sell. It's just like, ugh. Yeah, so seeing that, it, it just is a game changer. And I always loved what I formerly called seafood. I always loved that stuff. And so now it's it's kind of fun, like, finding the, you know, I know where to go in town for great faux crab cakes and all that kind of stuff. So it's, you, again, you don't have to just completely miss out on things. No, and there's no deprivation. I, I discovered eating, um, like, seaweed. You know, if I put seaweed in a, in a salad or in food, it gives that fishy taste. Yep. So um, I know that I'm not, you know, harming anyone except the seaweed, but I think they're okay. Uh, <laughs> so so and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. So you yeah. find the replacements, as you say. Right. What have you, what's been your experience of kind of the biggest misconceptions that you encounter with being vegan? Um, I would say it's... Uh, the, well, well, how can I say a few things? Uh, yeah. I, I would say that it's feeling that you're going to be deprived, mm-hmm. especially with food and with clothing. I think the other thing is, um, second, yeah, the second thing would be the inconvenience, mm-hmm. that it's going to be so difficult. Oh, you know, I mean, and expensive people think that also. And yes, mm-hmm. some food is more expensive because there isn't as much of a demand yet yet for it uh so some things are going to be more expensive but you know there's plenty of ways that you plenty of ways and opportunities to eat vegan where you're not spending a lot of money right but it is i and i am pretty lazy as a cook um you too i'm i'm trying to be a little better but i am healthy and being lazy i never feel deprived you know so i i think that people again have that misperception that it's going to, you know, there's going to be the deprivation and that it's going to be really, really hard to do. And mm-hmm. years back, yeah, it was hard to go find like really great shoes or really, really great clothing. 
great variety of food. So there was more of deprivation. It was more of an inconvenience. And you had to be more, um, you know, a better cook if you wanted to have variety as opposed to just eating rice and beans and salad. So I think people still think that that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And it's not true. I mean, maybe in certain small towns, it may be more of a challenge. But if people have the Internet, then there's, you know, you can get so much on the Internet. Right, exactly. And I think the same, like, since food is something that we have to do all the time, that's sort of where people's minds first go and, and completely agree with everything you said about that. And, and like with shoes and clothes and things like that, like, I've, I'm at a place now where I'm like, yeah, is it a little more inconvenient to find a a great pair of boots or a pair of dress shoes or whatever? Yes. Every now and then do I get sad when I see a cute pair of shoes and I'm like, oh, damn, they're leather. Yes. But I'm like the the amount of inconvenience or having to figure out a workaround, having to look a little longer is worth it to me to know that I'm not like paying someone to kill an animal. Like that's just it's without question worth the extra little bit of effort. It is. It is. And that's where, um, you know, that's where the. The word, and I, I'm, I'm, I am careful when I use this word. It's selfish, um, and I, I don't mean it in a way to um, be putting people down. Sure. I just mean it in a way of, you know, um, where selfish in that we're thinking of our needs and we're not thinking about another's needs, um, not taking the time to do that. It doesn't mean that somebody's a bad person. Right. It just right. means they're not taking that time. And I think if they'd be willing to take a little bit of time and say, okay, I want this. We all have our wants and our desires. There's nothing wrong with that. But is there a way that one could say, yes, I want these, I want this, but like as you're saying, maybe I'll have to go spend a little more time. Maybe I'll have to walk another couple of blocks to get the food that I want. Maybe I'll have to go to maybe five websites instead of two websites to find that perfect coat. Right. So you're you're it means that you're becoming less self-involved. Yeah. You're saying, yeah. I, I, I want this, but I'm also thinking about another being. Mm-hmm. And so how nice that is to know that you can have something that you want and makes you feel good, but you're not you're not harming mm-hmm. another entity. Yeah. And it's, it's like a big win, double, you know, big whammy, double whammy there. Totally. It can be a both and. Like, I want a pair of great shoes and I can know that I didn't have to contribute to a lot of suffering. And this is where, like, people will then, I think, I understand because I get, like, intersectionality and that we've got to think of more than just that. Like, okay, but then if my shoes were created by forever 21 and they you know have these factories that are unethical like we can go down the rabbit hole absolutely um so i totally respect that and it's also like the more just taking one of these actions to decide i'm going to contribute to less suffering and if i can even do that and i've got the extra little bit of time to find a brand that's also ethically sourced or you know that that has fair wage or fair labor practices even better but if i'm not gonna even you know most people who are making that argument aren't even necessarily taking that step and they're just trying to say well you know you're you're gonna talk about having cruelty free but then what about the the labor practices so it's just we get like pitted against each other in these really like unnecessary ways yeah, and it, and it shouldn't be because, you know, the whole idea, I mean, vegan, veganism is about 
you know, the practice of ahimsa, right, which is, you know, no, no cruelty to any living being, you know, and no harm to any living being. Well, that means human animal and non-human animal. So, you know, we do, you know, of course, you know, ethical vegans care about, you know, people being treated poorly and, and, and I mean, the intersectionality, um, argument is a is a valid argument and i think we do need to care very deeply about that and it, be, it it is a challenge though at times because you know especially if somebody doesn't have a lot of money and they say well i'm you know i'm an ethical vegan but um i can't afford getting a stella mccartney pair of shoes so i'm going to go to a store like payless though i hear they're coming out with a vegan brand martha stewart's cool. putting out I, I believe i have read that somewhere yeah but that's their you know it's like well that's the best that i can do so my what I say to people is, again, you do the best you can. Yeah. You know, but it's, I think if you become, um, like what you're talking about, if you become an ethical vegan, it does, and I think it should, open your, and I don't like to use the word should too much, mm-hmm. but in this case, yeah, that it opens you up to where there's oppression and exploitation all over the place. Mm-hmm. So you may not be perfect. You may still go to that store and buy the cheap shoes that are used by somebody you know, that's a company that is uh, not treating its workers well. But okay, that's where you're, that's where you're at, you're aware of it. So maybe you could, there's something else you could do about that. Maybe you could write a letter to the company and say, you know, this is something I'd like you to change because it isn't perfect. You know, even being an ethical vegan, as many people will say, you you go out, you, how how can you be a hundred percent? You go out, you, you're in the world, you might be, you know, you're sitting on leather, you're, um, you know, even the with organic food, the soil might be mm-hmm. from a factory farm. So there's never 100% perfect. Exactly. And that's not an argument for not, like, as you said, trying to do your best. Um, so, exactly. yeah, that's just a really, a really hard one. Um Oh, there was another misconception I was thinking about. Oh, just in terms of like, I get that people come to veganism from many different paths. And I'm like, any path that reduces suffering to animals and to the planet is A-OK by me. So I, you know, however you get into it, however, whatever your reasons are for decreasing your consumption of these products, like that is awesome. Um, But I think that because there just so happens to be that overlap between being vegan and being quote healthy or clean eating or all of that stuff that there, there does get to be a misconception of, of that, you know, Oh, well being vegan is, it relates to the deprivation, but it's also like, that's, you don't get to experience anything delicious and you're just going to be like the food police. And so that's why, like, as much as I appreciate like all kinds of really nutritious food and I love veggies and all of that. I also am like out there eating my vegan ice cream and like my, you know, fake chicken tenders and all of this stuff because I want people to know that, that, that those things are not necessarily, um, always overlapping. No, no, they're, I mean, they're, they're not, they're not. And I certainly will eat some processed food. And as I said, I will certainly have my vegan ice cream. I love that. That would, that would be deprivation for me if I couldn't have that, you know, and when I was, I was visiting family over the holidays and I went to um, a store in New York city that has, um, that has a vegan bakery called Lifetime. It's a health food store. And I picked up a whole bunch of 
items and I brought that to, um, you know, I brought that somewhere and then I to, I was going somewhere else and I also went to a, a vegan bakery in Washington, D.C. and I picked up a whole bunch of, you know, desserts, and cookies and, 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 and donuts and great stuff and everybody mm-hmm. in the two places I went loved it and I certainly had wait a little way too I would say a little I, I had way too much of that but it was fun <laughs> and I didn't care I mean it was a holiday yeah. so there was no deprivation and you again like you're saying you go back to being vegan this, sh- this shouldn't be anything about policing how you're doing it you know you make a choice for yourself about what kind of a you know vegan you want to be and the kind of foods you want to eat and hopefully I, I, I mean I would think you'd want to, a person would want to be healthy I mean not be mm-hmm. an unhealthy vegan just because one could you know, eat nothing but, you know, sugar. <laughs> yeah, and be an unhealthy vegan. And then people say, oh, look, you're so unhealthy. And that's because you're a vegan. Right. It's like, no, that's because you're eating food that vegan or not, that it's unhealthy yeah. for you. Right. So that's kind of an issue too. Yeah. Or just like, I, I like thinking of that kind of stuff as rather than the term junk food, I like play food, which comes from um, in the intuitive eating model. So it's like, yeah, I love having my play food and I love making sure that my body is well nourished. Um, that's great. I yeah. love that play yeah. food. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your book. Like how did that even come about and how did you... Like, what's the kind of angle you take with it and why you decided to kind of land on that angle? Sure. So I had been, um, so I'm a big reader and um, and also as a therapist and working with clients that are ethical vegans and activists, you know, they would ask me sometimes over the years about, are there any books, you know, to read about, you know, what, you know, how people are coping with being vegan in a non-vegan world and hadn't really found anything, uh, anything that was written by a therapist. I'm not saying that that wasn't, I, you know, I, I didn't do a, a full, um, I didn't do all this research on it, but I had nothing came to mind, nothing that I saw. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that, you know, it would be really nice to have a book out there that ethical vegans and animal activists and animal rescuers and people that are helping animals in general could read and that they could um, get some coping skills for how do you deal with the trauma that you face day to day, whether you're, you know, you're rescuing dogs and cats, you're a veterinarian and you're seeing animal abuse, you're an undercover investigator at a factory farm, a slaughterhouse, you work for an animal advocacy organization, you're seeing videos all the time. What do you do? How do you handle that? So um, my angle was was twofold. The first was, okay, I want to give people as a therapist some coping mechanisms and to, you know, to help them um, help them manage day to day, and when things come up and they get overwhelmed, some some tools they could use. The other part of it in the book was um, was to have a, a way for um, other people that are advocates and rescuers and veterinarians um, to see that they're not alone. So what I did is that um, I got all these. Um, I reached out to people. To all those people, to, to people who worked at different animal advocacy organizations, like in different countries, like all around the world, mm-hmm. and to the vets and the rescuers, and to people that worked in animal shelters, uh, ethical vegans, just to you know get their stories. Like, how do you, you know, how do you cope, and what are your challenges? Because I wanted people again 
to see that, hey, I'm not alone. And oh, so-and-so had an idea of how to cope. Maybe that will be useful for me. Maybe I can try that. So it would be, A, they'd have me as the therapist as a support system, but they'd also have you know, other people that love animals as a, as a, a larger support system. Mm-hmm. So that was really that was really the impetus for that. And then if people were going to share the book with those that are, you know, not vegans or activists, that it might be a way for them to learn something about, you know, about the issues. Like, why do these people in my family, why are my friends, why do they choose to help animals and advocate for animals? Well, here are some reasons. These are their stories. This is what they witnessed. Like, oh, okay. So that's, what I'm hoping is happening out there with the book. And um, I have found that people come to me and said they've really, you know, it's been really helpful to them because they had been feeling that they were very alone. Mm-hmm. And who can they, who can they talk to about the depth of, of, of sadness that they feel of the trauma that they've experienced witnessing animal abuse or hearing about it or just experiencing it, it for some people in their day to day lives. So this was a way for them to not be so alone. Yeah, I love that. I wish that I had found that when I was first making my transition. It just sounds so invaluable. And I I can already think I don't have too many vegan clients because it's something that I haven't really marketed a lot, but it might sort of, you know, exist online and a few people have found me and I can't wait to get that book in their hands. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah, like I don't. Do you follow um, Colleen Patrick Gaudreau's stuff m- very much? No, I mean I know of her and I yeah. met her. But I don't. I don't follow her. Yeah, she, she's got you know so much content that it it can be overwhelming. But that sure. was one of the resources that really helped me when I was um, starting to educate myself. And she's got this ten part podcast series. I can't even remember when it aired at least a couple years ago. So you kind of have to dig into the archives, but she created like this, the 10 stages of going vegan. And so all of the, you know, the phases that people go through of the, the anger and kind of feeling more like militant or the, just all of it. That's a natural part of the process. And I shared that with one of my clients who came to me for this recently. And he was just like, oh my God, this just like, she was describing my story. Like it was so, so helpful. So I think for people who are more podcast people, like they've got resources like her for people that are, that are book people. Like it's just, it helps to have all these resources in different places where um, people are going to get what they need in whatever form that they need it. Very true. And, and it is, the support is out there. You know, people just have to just have to look for it. I mean, I had started a, um, I'm in New York City, so I had started a support group for vegans and activists. And uh, we, we did it, it was in four or four week intervals. And uh, so we did the first one last month. And it was, you know, what they would say was, wow, this is really, um, this is really helpful to have a place with other people that we can talk about things that, you know, you can't talk about with your other friends, you can't talk about it with your family members. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping that that will continue. We'll see if there's a, you know, it seems like there's a need, but not 100% certain if there's a big, big need. Because again, some people don't want to commit, and that's fine. But as you say, some people would rather read a book. Some people would rather just together get together with a couple of friends some, and talk. Some people would rather, you know, get together to protest and after have coffee and, and discuss things or read a podcast. 
And whatever, whatever works, because we're all different, is great. But just what I would say to people is just look in your area. If there's nothing in your area, look online. There are meetups, which are wonderful for, you know, that people can um, avail themselves of. Uh, and you've got uh, there's plenty out there of ways of getting the support that you need. And, yeah. and, and vegan therapists, you know, and hopefully more will, you know, kind of come out and say, I'm a vegan therapist and um, be proud of it. Right. And be able to, uh, you know, be there for the people that need them. Right. Yeah, it's such an inter interesting intersection of bringing that into the clinical work. And yes. like when I first sort of had that idea after going to my first veg fest and I was just like, I need to do something. So I went home and like immediately built my website. And um, as far as like, why would people, why would a vegan want to go to a vegan therapist? I think like you're saying, there's, there's some unique challenges that some people might not understand. And as much as I kind of say this on my website, but like, it's not that you need your therapist to share all of your, your same values and lifestyle and preferences and all of that. Like, and no one needs that from their therapist, but I think that this is such a huge thing that um, comes, is, is part of our everyday lives. And whereas some people are Christian and they just feel more comfortable seeing a Christian counselor who they know shares certain kind of fundamental core values or practices with them. Um, similarly, someone might feel more comfortable knowing that somebody really gets this firsthand. And I think that's, you know, really understandable, but, and also that this might be more rare and, and, probably not with a, a very skilled therapist, but I can also see that there could be damage that could happen too if you went to a non-vegan therapist who was trying to say like, oh, well, you're probably just depressed because you're deficient in protein. And are you really sure that you want to do this? Like, I, I'm sure, absolutely positive that's happened. And so I think that knowing that there are people out there who are, are going to get that and, and help you to heal in other ways. Yeah, I think that's important. And, and you're right. I think there, there are people that might not be skilled or even if they are skilled, they just wouldn't, they don't know about veganism. So they may actually, or they may be opposed to veganism. They, you know, F, or, I mean, um, their values may be such that, you know, they think that that's, you know, a wrong way to go that, you yeah. know, uh, that this is, you know, we're supposed to eat animals. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I will say it just kind of comes to mind. And I was thinking about that before we were going to speak today. And you know, the idea of going to a therapist that's not vegan, in a, a, a training that I did, I was required to see, um, to get some consultation. It was as part of the, the training process. And I did go to a woman and, um, and she was lovely and she had, she had cats. And I, in the, it, whatever the work was that I was doing, I ended up talking about, you know, my deep feelings and sadness and just well, sadness. I mean, total despair over yeah. uh, the reality of animal abuse. And she was, you know, she, um, she, you know, she listened to me and she seemed empathic. Uh, you know, she was kind of with me with where I was, but when I left, I knew that that's not what she was about. And I felt, I felt, uh, like I had in a way, kind of violated myself, like by opening up to that level where I was crying and I was just like, oh, wow, this is so intense. And this wasn't even therapy. This was just, you know, part of part of the supervision that I had to have. And 
it was nothing that she did wrong, nothing. But I just knew when I was speaking, I, I knew this wasn't who she was. Mm-hmm. So it felt wrong. And if it had been somebody who, um, when I was in another training and I did go to somebody and I also needed supervision and she was an ethical vegan and the feeling was so different, mm-hmm. it just felt like, okay, this is somebody that I can be open and honest with and would really get me. And you want, you know, someone to get you in, in whatever way you need. So I think yeah. that's what I need to really think about. Is this person who I'm going to really getting me? And and again, you may be going to somebody who's not a vegan therapist and you're vegan and the person, it just is not an issue and it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's great. The person does, gives you everything that you need. But I think, you know, if you're, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you got to ask yourself, like, what might that be? Right. Yeah. And I think on the flip side of that, um, with part of my fear of like being more out and about this is I, I don't want any of my non-vegan clients to feel like I'm judging them, you know, and that's so hard. And, and of course that's an issue with outside of the therapy room too, just with family and friends. And for the most part, it's felt okay. Like I, I feel like I'm able to approach it or or know when not to approach it in ways that like I still can feel like genuinely loving and accepting of of my non-vegan friends and family um and and clients and yet I think that because some vegans some people in the community like obviously we've got a little bit of a reputation for being um self-righteous and and militant and all of that like and i get how that develops but i i hate that that people might have that conception and i i certainly wouldn't want anybody who comes into my therapy office needing acceptance and and compassion to feel like oh but she's vegan and i eat meat so i better be really careful what i say you know well, that's true. And I, I mean, I, I have a lot of clients that are not vegan and the issue doesn't come up and I, I love them and we have great relationship and it's, there's no judgment going on whatsoever. They're coming to me for other issues and, and that's what we focus on. So yep. it's, it's a, it's a completely a non issue there. And I think if they came into the session and maybe they said, well, she's, it's interesting. She, she deals with some of the issues I want. Let's just see. Cause I know she's vegan, let me see what I get from her. And if they felt at all that I was judging, they wouldn't come back. And I would be an awful, awful therapist if I was one that would be judging anybody, whatever it is. Completely. Yeah. And, and I think if it does come up, then it's just like when a transference of any kind comes up, it's grist for the therapeutic mill. And it's only been really with one client and, um, that I've had to kind of navigate that, um, who is, you know, eating disorder recovery kind of person. And, and, but it's been, I feel like it's, it's actually has been a rich part of navigating our therapeutic relationship and, and her having the corrective experience of, I can have a different choice and be completely accepting and non-judgmental and respectful of, of your choices and all of that. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's felt that way for her, but it's, yeah. So I think it can, if it does come up, then it's something that can be really rich to work through. Well, did she come back after oh, that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, it, you know, it was fine. Yeah. Cause if it wasn't, <laughs> that would have been the last session. 
Right. Yeah. So there's something that um, you kind of mentioned a little bit in some of the questions that I asked before of getting into the the idea of sort of shared consciousness and how our it's just sort of another layer of our interconnection. So I would love for you to to talk a little bit about like how do you see those two things as connected, like your commitment to animal rights and veganism and this this sort of interest that you have around exploring shared consciousness. Yeah, and it's it's so it's so new. I mean, really new. So I have to say, I there's no way that I could speak intelligently about it's this. Okay, yeah, we'll just riff on <laughs> it for a minute. Anybody listening would be like, "What is she talking about?" She's all over the Um I've always been interested in just the kind of the idea that people can like, communicate with animals, or somebody can be communicate with you know those that have passed on, you know, people too, and. I, uh, I am friends with an animal communicator and I had actually, um, I have referred some people to her and, and they thought that she, people that, cause I also do animal bereavement in my practice. So, uh, you know, the people that I sent to her and I'm always like, you know, Hey, this is an option if it would work for you. And if it doesn't, that's fine. And for the ones that went, it was very powerful. And I used her myself for my animals that have passed on. And she was so spot on with what she said. And she never, I mean, you know, friend, we're friends, friendly, but she never came to my home. She never met my animals. And I thought, wow, that's really cool that she could, um, that she was able to connect in some way. And then I, in, um, in, in my somatic, I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner. And in my training, um, the one, one of the people that I studied with, is very big on this idea of, well, actually there's been several people like that, but she's been very big on the idea of, you know, that we're all kind of connected. And she had recommended a book to me, which actually my, is called, I think I might've written it down. It's called One Mind by Larry Dossey. Cool. So he's an MD and um, he talks about the non-local mind and he references many other people. And it's the idea that, you know, that we are all connected, that there, the consciousness is all connected, that it's not that every moment we're all feeling into each other, but with intention, that ability is there. That mm-hmm. consciousness, when we pass on, doesn't just die. And he goes into explanations about, you know, we'll look at the people that can do what that's called, I think it's called, um, uh, it's like remote, I think it's like remote, it's not that quite remote the term. viewing or, yeah. That's, remote viewing mm-hmm. um, and people that can um, and people that can with some of the other things too. Basically that you can, it's kind of like the ESP idea. Yeah. You can find something, you can, you can connect with somebody. Oh, you can know that uh, somebody's hurt. So the idea that how is it that you know that in, in a certain moment you're feeling a pain in your chest and then you find out that somebody that you love somewhere else was having a heart attack. Mm. So it's these kind of things. How do, how do children, when they're very young, can experience and, and um, or have feel like they've had experiences of, of a past life, or they talk about, they know of a place, and they talk about it in detail that they've been to, and they could never have been there. They're like, you know, three, four years old. It's like, well, how does that happen? So I'm very intrigued by this. And of course, there's always the naysayers that say, no, 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 you know, it's all coincidence. But he makes a really great case uh, for it not being coincidence. Yeah. And 
a lot of support out there for it not being coincidence. So I'm just curious about it because I've always loved the idea that, well, maybe one day I could communicate with animals. Mm-hmm. And I re- actually, I read a book on how to do that and, and uh, they give you some exercises and I failed yeah. this. <laughs> and then somebody was a communicator. No, you can't learn it from a book. I'm like, that makes me feel better. Yeah. But it would be wonderful to be able to get in touch with that part of your consciousness that you can do that. Right. And and just like the piece of it that's, um, I wonder, and, and this is all in the part that's like, I imagine a little too esoteric or, or um ethereal to to really study concretely but like how much of that depends on having the shared common language like would i be better able to have sort of a shared you know consciousness experience with someone who is also thinking in english as opposed to thinking in whatever you know a, a pig experiences in their mind yeah so, i don't really think no, I, I think the idea is no, it wouldn't matter. Mm. And the people that can really connect to animals, no, it has nothing to do with language. You can be connecting, because it, it's not about language. It goes beyond that. Right. And of course, there's all the nonverbal stuff that we're, we, we already can communicate with animals in some ways, but of yep. course, the limitations. And for anybody listening who's interested in this, because I think you and I are at, at similar place of like really kind of curious about all of this, but yeah. just kind of dipping a foot in and, and still exploring. I'm yeah. dipping so right now. Exactly. Um, so ep- on my episode number 13, I had uh, Dr. Allison Devers on and I met her at a hypnotherapy training and she is, so she's a, a traditionally trained medical doctor and, and it also has gone through um, functional medicine training oh. and is working on a book on the subconscious. And we yes. talk about some of these things in that episode and it's just like, she was kind of blowing my mind with you know, oh yeah, like there've been, you know, documented instances of these kinds of things happening. And I'm just, you know, coming from a person who's very skeptical and I, and I certainly am not giving up my skepticism, but I think that recognizing that, and, and, you know, like you said, Larry Dossie, who wrote this book is another MD. Like there are people out there with very traditional science-based training who are, who are saying, yeah, and there's more. <laughs> and that's it. And they were skeptical too. And then they had their own experiences, like you know, the near-death experiences is talked about a lot. Um, so, you know, I understand. I've been skeptical too. It's like, show me the proof. I'm just somebody that's always, you know, yeah. show me the proof. I, I just don't blindly, you know, have faith in something. But when you keep there, keeps being a, a repetition of certain kind of experiences in the world. There's got to be something to it. Mm-hmm. It can't just be coincidence. Yeah. You know, that yeah. that many coincidences. Right. Yeah. And I think that in our in our life and in our professional work, <clears throat> we just have to follow our curiosity and see where that leads us. And, you know, your curiosity is kind of taking you into that realm right now. And and mine. Um, are you an Enneagram person? Am I what? An Enneagram person. Do you know much about the Enneagram? I don't. What is that? <laughs> oh, wow. It's a it's a personality typing system. And um, the sort of joke is that, you know, if, if some people are like, oh, well, I, you know, I know what I am on Myers-Briggs. Um, oh. So the Myers-Briggs is for people with LinkedIn profiles is the joke. And the Enneagram is for 
um, for people who are a little more kind of spiritually attuned or open. But it's it's having a big cultural moment right now. Like there's all these Enneagram um, Instagram accounts that are just blowing up and it's right. really, really fascinating. But so I always, when I'm referring to how my brain works, I'm always like, it's my type seven thing. My curiosity is taking me in 18 different directions at the same time. Um, but one of them, of course, is like, how do I integrate more fully myself in this work and bring the vegan and animal rights and cruelty-free kind of into the clinical work? And that's something that I just really admire that you, you've you been able to do because I didn't know until recently that like, oh, there are a lot of other people who are doing this. And um, so yeah, I'm just kind of wondering like, through that process for you, has it been just a constant learning experience or have you felt like it's pretty seamlessly integrated the working with, with vegan and ethical vegans into your practice? Or I, it's a very vague question, but just wanting to know more about that process for you. Well, it's, it's not even about integrating it in. I mean, it's in the way that it's... Uh, like a lot of us have on our, our websites, you know, we talk about the different areas of specialties that we might have or areas of interest. And so that, you know, people that are, you know, let's say somebody needs couples therapy. Well, you know, are you a couples therapist. Oh, no, you don't talk about that. So I'm not going to go to you. So for me, it was it was a real um, I, had, I, I wouldn't say that I had to give it too much thought, but I, I had some pushback with people saying, you know, if you say that you're a vegan therapist, you're going to, like you had said before, people may feel, oh, she's going to be proselytizing and she's going to be judging me. And I have ideas about what vegan therapists, vegans are in general, and I don't want that. And people would say to me, you know, you may not want to, you know, kind of quote unquote, come out as a vegan therapist because you may lose clients. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, uh, I'm not worried about that because I know who I am and I know I'm not going to be judging people and if people feel uncomfortable and they don't want to try me out. I, everybody has a right to say who I want. They want to try, but I wanted it to, I was thinking about all the people that are the animal activists and all the ethical vegans and, and how they don't know what therapists would be um, receptive to them and open to them and understand where they're coming from. So I said, I want to make sure and not come from a place of fear, but to come from a place of openness that, you know, mm -hmm. I can be that therapist for those people. I can be whatever kind of a therapist, you know, somebody not obviously for everybody, but I, um, I can work with lots of different kinds of people. So this is just another thing that I do for another population. And if, you know, my clients who are coming to me, not for those issues, but for other issues might want to touch into it. That's great. We'll have a, we'll have a conversation. And I've had people that, um, who are not coming to me for that, but it end up saying, Oh, I came to you, uh, because I am a vegan or because I love animals and you talk all, you know, you talk about animals on your site. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that just made me feel good, but we never will be yeah. talking about issues about that. They just want to feel, they just know that, oh, I kind of get their sensibility. We share that. So I just yeah. wanted to be available for this other population, which I felt vegans and activists, which is not um, served enough. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, yeah. And one thing uh, I would love to ask is if, if you were thinking of either one thing or just a few key points that, that if there's, because there are probably people listening who uh -huh. are 
not vegan, maybe vegan curious, definitely animal lovers. So if there's anything beyond like the the piece that we kind of said about like, hey, there's great vegan food out there, like you can find it. Anything that you would want to share with them in terms of um, the information about the experience of the animals or just anything at all that you would want someone listening who is uh, an animal lover and maybe vegan curious? Uh, About the experience of the animals really about anything. That's just one thing that came to mind, but anything you would want to, to, to kind of leave them with a point or a few points. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say, um, you know, we were, you, we were talking about curiosity before and I would just say, you know, be, be curious to see how animals live and to, and to, and to learn about their experiences, you know, because curiosity can take you off in so many different directions. It can open your, it can open you, you up to so many different possibilities. And by opening up to, to, to the experience of animals, so all different kinds of animals, I mean, the animals we eat, the animals that we wear, the animals that are used for entertainment and to, you know, get into their lives a bit. It's going to make us I believe, you know, people of more depth going to make us people that, um, you know, people that have the ability to change because when you open yourself up with curiosity, you're more likely to make some changes because you're coming upon new experiences, you're expanding your mind. So I would encourage people to be curious. I mean, that's something I would say in life in general. And it's, it's just a great way to live. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I love that because I think that people are like curiosity is such a wonderful thing to to experience and to follow. But like just saying what might happen if you applied that curiosity to, huh, how are these animals doing who are being, you know, used in the circus or um, hmm, what is it really like on a dairy farm when, you know, gosh, the the cows are only producing milk when they're just given birth and so what is that like what happens to the baby after the birth and just following that curiosity and applying that to to what it's like for animals i think that is the best possible answer so thank you yeah, yeah no thank yeah just putting yourself you know it's the idea of also putting yourself in somebody else's you know shoes so to speak or hoofs mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. That's, that's, that's the other thing also, which I think is something that we all could do, whether it's with human animals or non-human animals. Mm-hmm. It'll just make mm-hmm. us all, I think, more compassionate. Yeah, expanding oh, our empathy beyond yeah. just humans and even beyond our pets. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, April, what is the fucking point of any of this? <laughs> well... You know that's that is one of those questions uh, that I uh, that I eternally am looking for uh, for an answer for, and I have clients coming in for that. What is it? I again, I, I guess I would say the point is, you know, we're we're here on Earth to going back to what I said before about being being curious, and through the curiosity, hopefully some answers will come, and I don't know if any big big answer will come. But in each of our lifetimes, hopefully, we'll find an answer for us. Because I don't think at this point, at least I can't wrap my head around an answer for the whole world, for the whole universe. What does it all mean? I don't know. But we can certainly on a maybe not on a macro level, but on a micro level, we can figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that makes me think of um, the poet David White. He he talked about on on an on being interview about what he calls beautiful questions. I think that's where maybe I can't remember where where I heard his, but that's his concept is beautiful questions, and um, and there it's the idea that they are questions to live into rather than questions that are supposed to have an answer. So it sounds like. That's kind of like your take on this is that, you know, it's just about kind of being curious and living into the question and then we'll see. (laughs) And that's exactly, that's exactly what I think. And that's exactly how I I live my life with that, because I I would love to know, you know, I'd love to have an answer. So, I mean, I I so much want an answer, but I don't see that coming um, anytime soon, you know, Mm -hmm. the big answer. And that's okay. That's okay. You have to be okay with that. And then one day, you know, might wake up and be surprised and it all comes together. And I, you know, this big epiphany and I know what it's all about. Yes. And which I will ask you to bring me back on the show and I will, yes. tell, you, I will yes. tell your viewers. Once you just, have reached enlightenment, we will definitely have you back on the show. <laughs> um, so is there anything that you want to share? Obviously, I'll have your, your bio and your link to your website and your book online in the show notes. Um, but is there anything that you want to share with people about what you have going on either in New York City or more broadly? Um, well, besides the support group that I'm trying to get going again, um, I'm in the process of figuring out what my next article is going to be. Um, I'm going to be doing a humane education presentation, which is something else I do. I'm a humane educator. Mm. So I'm going to be doing that in a middle school, which I'm very excited about this week. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say for right now, that's, that's kind of it tomorrow. There might be something else to say, yeah. but for right now, I think that's, that, that works. That's enough got, for me. Yeah. You've got plenty on your plate. I have plenty on my plate. Absolutely. Yes. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I could keep going for another hour, but we'll bring well, you back some you. other time. It's wonderful, uh, getting to chat with you and to chat with your viewers. And so thank you for the experience, the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and you can find the show notes and past episodes over at wonderwelltherapy.com slash podcast. So any links, resources mentioned in the episode, information about guests, all of that good stuff you can find right over there. Also, if you're not already a subscriber, you can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Find me on Instagram at Val K. Martin. That's V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. So you can tag me in your screenshots listening and I can give you a shout out. And there's also a link there in my bio to review the podcast right from your phone. It takes 30 seconds and it really helps me out. It helps people find the show. See you next time. And until then, keep asking the big questions.